Revelation chapter 1. I want to begin today just by opening up with um, just praying for our teaching. And so if you would just join me as uh, we do that today. Father, right now as we open your word, and I pray that you would give me the words the right way, the right words in the right order, just to be able to communicate some of these wonderful things. And I pray, God, that you give us all eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that would be receptive to the things that you'd want to share today. So be with us right now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we have been looking this year at the subject of Bible prophecy because of the things that we've seen taking place in our world. It's been a very, very unique year. And um, so for that reason, one of the reasons we decided that we would begin and we'd study the book of Revelation. And I, I think it's also important that we study this book because, you see, there is this rumor that is going around. There are those who are going around and they are saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. But au contraire, say we, for you see, the word revelation itself means that something has been revealed. Absolutely. If God wanted to conceal something, he would have called it the concealation, not the revelation. So what is it that's being revealed in this book? Revelation chapter one, the opening line, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to find is that Jesus is the one who is being revealed in this book, not as we knew him as he walked through Galilee 2,000 years ago, but as he is today, we would say in his glorified, resurrected state. And God so wanted his people to read this book that he promised for those who would take the time to read this book that they would receive a very special blessing, blessing, which is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Let's look at it. Blessed, uh, Revelation 1, verse 3, and if you haven't underlined it, you want to, blessed is he who reads. Guys, this is the only book in the Bible that says, read me, I'm special. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. So it would be odd for us to believe in a God who says, I'll bless you if you read it. I I want you to read it. I want you to heed it. But here's the thing, you're never going to understand it. Uh, That would be odd for us to believe in a God like that. God so wanted his people to understand this book, but he knew there would be people going around saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. So to make this book understandable, God put in this book its very own outline. And that outline is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Let's look at it. Revelation 1, 19 John is taught, or John is told, he says, write, write the things which you have seen, that'll be the first division, the things which are, the second division, and the things which will take place after these things. And from last week, that Greek word for after these things is the word metatauta, metatauta. And we'll talk about that a great deal as we go. So the first division, he says, write the things that you have seen. So the question is, what is it that John has seen up to this point in the book of Revelation? Well, he's seen Jesus in his glorified, resurrected state. Everybody look at verse 13. Verse 13, it says, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. And it goes on to describe Jesus as he is now. But then it says, uh, therefore, verse 19, therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are. Now the things which are will pertain to what you and I will call the church age. And that will take place in Revelation chapters 
2 and 3. What Jesus is going to do, and let me just say that again, Jesus is going to dictate seven letters to seven churches. And what we're going to find is that in, these, in, the, in their particular order, these seven churches are going to lay out for us with incredible precision 2,000 years of church history. If you reverse the order of any of the churches, it makes absolutely no sense. But in their order, they will lay out 2,000 years of church, church history. So he says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, but then he says, write the things which will take place after these things. Well, after what things? After the things that are. So when will we see that phrase, after these things again? We're going to see that in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Notice it's going to say, and you want to underline if you haven't, uh, John is there and it says, now after these things, again after chapters 2 and 3, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you what must take place and then I want you to underline after these things. The Holy Spirit is so concerned to make sure that we don't miss that this is the third division in the book of Revelation, or the third division in the book of Revelation, that he starts the verse with after these things, and he ends the verse with after these things. Now, uh, what's interesting here is that this is going to be a picture of the rapture. It's after the church age. We'll talk about that. And so John sees a door standing open in heaven. A voice says, come up here, a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. And what we're going to see as John goes up, we're going to see that although the word church will be mentioned over 20 times in the first three chapters, from chapter 4, verse 1 to the end of the book, there's going to be one word that's going to be glaringly absent, and that word is church. And the reason is, is that the church is no longer part of the story on the ground, on the earth, from chapter 4, verse 1 to the end of the book. At the end of the book, after the story, Jesus will say, I wanted to give this to the churches so that they would understand. But as far as the story, it's no longer part of the story. So the church goes up, the rapture, chapter 4, verse 1, and then what comes down? Wrath. And that is found in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. Let's look at it. Everybody go over to chapter 6. Verse 16, this is going to be the opening volley of that time period that we're going to know as the tribulation. So in verse 16 of chapter 6, and we'll study this when we get there, it says, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. That's going to be a reference to God the Father. And from the wrath of the, and what's that word? Lamb. In the Bible, who is the Lamb? It's Jesus. Notice verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Nobody expected that that would happen. We're all very comfortable with the Jesus who kisses the babies and says nice things and love one another. But we're very uncomfortable with the Jesus who says there will come a day when the wrath of God will be poured out on the world that has rejected the gospel, rejected him. And uh, that's going to be the opening volley of that time period again that we would refer to as the tribulation. Well, today we are going to begin studying what he calls the things that are. So I want you to go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, and, uh, as, and we're going to refer to this as the church age. And uh, Jesus is going to dictate seven letters to seven churches. 
And let me say again, this is Jesus dictating the letters to seven churches. This is not Paul writing or, or somebody like that. This is Jesus, and he's dictating these, these letters. In all of the letters, there's going to be a commendation from Jesus as to what they got right. There's going to be a criticism of some things they're not doing so right. And then there's going to be an exhortation. Here, here's what you need to do. And so we're going to look at that. It's going to be a report card. Seven letters written, and uh, they're all going to have what we're going to call, I put this on your outline, four levels of application. And so I'll go through this today. We won't be going through this each week, but just to show you how this works. In each of these letters, we're going to find that it's written to a local church. You want to write that down. So Jesus will say, to the church or to the angel of the church. These will be seven literal churches. They actually existed. Um, and what he's writing about was actually going on in that church. There's going to be an application for all churches. Uh, notice he says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And uh, he's going to say that to every one of the churches uh, as he goes through. So he's going to be writing to one particular church each time, but there's going to be application for all of us. There's going to be a personal application. And all of the churches, he's going to say, and I put it there in your outline, he who has an ear, let him hear. So there's going to be an aspect of each of these letters that's going to encourage us and uh, maybe convict us so that we can make some changes as we go. But then the part that I'm so fascinated by, I'm fascinated with all of it, but there's going to be a prophetic application, and you want to write that down. You'll remember from last week, and we just read the verse a few minutes ago, Revelation 1.3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Uh, we mentioned last week that it's the book of Revelation. It's not the book of Revelations in the plural. It's not a bunch of revelations, it's one. And it's a prophecy, it's not a compilation of prophecies. It is a prophecy that begins in chapter 1 and goes all the way through. And so what we're going to find is that the churches that we're going to look at are going to lay out 2,000 years of church history with incredible precision. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I would want to say on that, I, like, like so many, I grew up in church, wonderful church experience. I went to seminary, and when you're in seminary, you have to take a year of church history. And so we studied through church history and all the, the main things and, and all that, which was great. But I never heard what I'm going to be sharing. And it wasn't until after I got out of seminary that somebody shared this with me. And because maybe because of the church history background, it, it just clicked so fast. But it, it amazed me how precise this is as it relates to the churches in the last 2,000 years. So we'll be looking at that, and I'll be bringing out some of the church history books as we go. And, and uh, you know, maybe that'll put you to sleep. Maybe not. We'll see as, as we go. But he's going to be writing to these seven churches. Again, Jesus is dictating these, these uh, letters to these churches. And I wanted to put a map up. The first church that we're going to study today is going to be the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus and all these churches are in the area that they called Asia back in those days. Today, we would call that area Turkey, modern-day Turkey. These are all in what we would call the modern-day Turkey. And they're all going to be in order. So you have Ephesus, which is down to the left a little bit. And you go up and you got Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And they will be written in that order. What hits you is that these are not 
written to prominent churches like the Church of Antioch, the Church of Rome, uh, the Church in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, these churches, we might not even know, other than Ephesus, we might not even know that they existed if Jesus didn't dictate these letters to these churches. And it's important because he's dictating these, le- this le- these letters to these churches in their order, again, because they're going to lay out 2,000 years of church history. So today, we're going to jump in to the church of Ephesus. Uh, very quickly, Ephesus was founded 1,400 years before Jesus was born. Um, it's, a, it's a very wealthy town. They, they were very much into the arts. They had a massive theater. The, the ruins are still there today. Put the picture up. They say it could seat some 24,000 people, and uh, that's the ruins today. And you can look that up. It's everywhere online. So, But uh, th- that's something that they were into. They were a very pagan society. They, they worshipped the goddess Diana. We would know her also as Artemis. And the way that the temples were supported in that day, very pagan, is they practiced what was called temple prostitution. So the way that you would serve your God is that you would go out and you would prostitute yourself and that money would come into the temple. It's a very effective form of fundraising. We've looked at it, but our bylaws, (laughs) but our bylaws (laughs) state. So we're going to stick with the car washes and and, and things like that. So the the point is that the church, the early church was birthed in a time of paganism. Uh, it was uh, at birth in a place of hostility towards the gospel. And so when Paul goes to Ephesus, 30 some years before this is actually written in Revelation, Paul's going to spend three years there in Ephesus establishing this church. He leaves that church and then about a year or so later he comes back and he meets with the church leadership there in Ephesus. And this is important to show you why Jesus is going to say some of the things that he's going to say. So Paul meets with the church of Ephesus, the leaders, and he says this. You want to underline some of this. He says, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. And I've underlined that. Come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, and I've underlined this, from among yourselves. Men will rise up speaking. And most of your Bibles are going to have that word. Well, actually, I put it there, so it's going to say that. But perverse, perverse things. What I've done is that word perverse, in, in, if you go to a dictionary, um, like Strong's Dictionary where I took this, just means to distort or misinterpret. Uh, and the reason I put that there is because in today's world, unlike when your Bibles were being translated hundreds of years ago into the English, perverse meant something different. So if I say pervert, you all have a certain mindset. But it just means to distort or misinterpret is, is what, it, what it says. And so they're going to draw away the disciples after themselves. So Paul says, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, we'd say to God's word, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul says, when I go, this is going to happen. You can take it to the bank. They're going to come in among you from the outside. 
They're going to come up from among yourselves, from the inside. They're going to have an agenda. They're going to draw away disciples to themselves as they misinterpret and they distort the things of the gospel. So they're going to do that and they're going to twist so that they can draw people away. So Paul says, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to commend you to his word, uh, to God and to his word. So they were on guard. They, they, they looked at everything. They checked out everything because Paul had told them false teachers are going to come in. And later on, Paul would even write to them after this from the book of Ephesians. And he would say this there in your outline. As a result, we are no longer called to be children tossed here and there by waves, and I've underlined, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. So they took it serious. They, they weren't going to allow themselves to be carried off by every wind of doctrine that blew through. So serious that 30-some years later, 95 A.D., Jesus begins to write back to them, and we're going to find that he commends them on some things, and yet he's going to criticize them on some things. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 2. I'll read the first three verses. And again, this is 30-some years after Paul had written to the Ephesians, and he says, Jesus is speaking, he's dictating this. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, I've underlined that, and your toil and perseverance, some of your Bibles will say steadfastness, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and then I've underlined, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. So they've really been checking. And you have, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So a, a couple of things. First of all, we're going to find that the names of these churches are going to be very important as we go. And each name is going to pertain to that particular church. So the name of this church is Ephesus. Ephesus there on your outline just means desirable. Now in those days, that would be a term of endearment. Sort of like if you turn to your spouse and you say honey or dear, uh, it's a term of endearment. So that's the idea of that. So this is going to be the first church. It's going to be that, that you know, he's going to say, this, you're, you're my darling church. This is going to represent the church, uh, we would say the apostolic age to about 100 AD, the first 100 years of the church. And uh, that'll certainly make sense as we go. Jesus is going to give a title of himself to this church. And the title that he gives to himself of this church, as he writes there in your outline, he says, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, in every church, his title that he gives to that church will be a reminder of something that they need to hear. So this church, in his title of himself, they need to hear, and you want to write this down, that I'm in your midst, or he's in their midst, and that's something that they needed to be reminded of. In verse 1, it talked about how he holds the seven stars and the lampstands. Would you go back up to chapter 1, verse 20? It's just one verse up. And Jesus says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, 
which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is saying, I'm the one, I'm in the midst of all these churches, which is going to be important as we go. So one of the things that I said is that every title that Jesus gives of himself will be something that that particular church needs to be reminded of. And uh, we'll talk about this each and every, every week. But I want you to go over to chapter 3 real quick. I'm going to do this just this week. Chapter 3, and I want you to go to verse 14. Uh, this is going to be the last church. We're going to say this is the last day's church. Jesus is going to give a title of himself. And I want to just highlight something. He never has to say this to any other church. But in verse 14, he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, and we'll certainly talk about those when we get there. But then it says, And the beginning of the creation of God says this. And I want you to underline the creation of God says this. Now, the reason that's so important, first of all, when he says the beginning of the creation of God, is not saying that Jesus was created first. Um, it, what it's saying is that Jesus was the one who began the creation. He is the creator. The last church is the only church that Jesus has to remind that he's the creator because it's in that last church just before, a few verses later, after these things, John goes up, the church goes up. The last church has forgotten that he is the creator. And apparently in that church, they believe that it all came into existence through some other methodology. What would that methodology be? Evolution. Do you know that you and I live in the only generation in 2,000 years of church history where people profess to be followers of Jesus and they come to church each week and you talk about creation? You go, yeah, I don't believe that. I believe it came in through some other process. So Jesus reminds that last church that he is the creator. Do you find that interesting? Let's go back to chapter two, chapter two. And so he, we're going to see how each church, the title will pertain to something that they need to hear. So verses two and three says, I know your deeds, and I've underlined that, and your toil, I've underlined that, perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. So one of the things that we find, is, he says, you know, I, I've, as a commendation, here's what you got right. You, you, you've got working, you got serving, you got toil, you got deeds. And so one of the things that we find is that they made serving God a priority. And so he says, I saw it. I see it. You're, you're serving. You're, you're toiling. You're, you're there. You, you want to be part of what it is that God is doing. So, so they were all in. Um, and then I put on your outline, they had perseverance. And some of your Bibles would say steadfastness. But in hostile times, they persevered. It wasn't easy being a Christian in that first century. And we've certainly read some of the stories. Another thing that we're going to find is that their theology was impeccable. And uh, verse 2, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men. And he says, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. This church was warned that false teachers and false teachings would be coming into the church, sometimes from inside, sometimes from the outside. 
And so they were told, don't be carried off by every wind of doctrine. So they made it a study and they made sure that what they were teaching was accurate and they checked it out. They, they, they didn't want to allow themselves to be wrong. And they said, so if it's false, we're going to expose it. We as churches are called to examine to make sure that things are, are true and, uh, and we're called to expose things that are not true. If you've been around the church block, you'll probably notice that there are some very weird things going on in the name of Christianity. Am I the only person who ever notices this? There's some strange things. And typically what happens, and this is important for our study, typically what happens is that um, church and church world, we tend to go to two extremes. And uh, so, so like one church extreme would be you go to this church and there's all of these strange, bizarre things happening. We might say swinging from the chandelier, rolling around, you know, all types of, you know, stuff. And you're like, whoa, what in the world is going on here? But if you question, say, is this really from the Lord? You're told, do not quench the spirit. How many of you have ever heard, do not quench the spirit? And so, you know, and so uh, they don't want you to quench the spirit. The other side of the church will be they're so afraid that we might get out of line, and this is where we're going to find the Ephesians, so we might get off into some heresy that we shut down everything. So, for instance, you've heard me say, the church that I went to prior to going to Calvary, wonderful church, uh, one day we were singing, we had our hymn, hymn books open, and we're singing, and there's a lady who's moved by the song, and in the midst of the song, she raises her hand like this, to which the pastor stands up, stops the whole service and says, stops the whole service and says, ma'am, we don't do that here. Um, and uh, one of those awkward church moments, you know, I, I didn't see her the next week. I don't know what happened. But, but here, here's what happens. We're so afraid and we're going to check everything, but we allow nothing. And uh, so, so if you've been around church world for some time, you know, there's two phrases that you tend to hear. One phrase is do not quench the spirit. How many of you have heard that, that phrase? Okay. And then how many of you have heard the phrase test all things? You got to test all things. That's good. What most people don't realize is that those two verses are actually together in the Bible. I put them there on your outline. Paul would say, he says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So this church, they tested and they are commended for that. They served and that's good. They persevered and that's good. Um, but, but now there's this bad news. And uh, that begins in verse four. And this is for all of us. Jesus says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. So the criticism of this church, and you want to write that down, they left their first love. And that word love there is the word agape. You're all familiar with that. It's that love that, that comes to God, from God, and, and it's all about, about him. And so apparently when Jesus looks down at this church, he realizes, and I have in my notes, uh, he looks down, they have a lot of deeds. And I, again, I have in my notes, they had motion, but they had lost emotion. They had action, but no passion. And uh, they were so busy being right that they had left their first love. And apparently they forgot. Yes, it's good that you checked it out, but guys, Jesus is in your midst. It's going to be okay. He's not going to let you get off into a strange, a strange place. 
So apparently what was taking place is they were so in love with their theology that they forgot to be in love with Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm glad you're doing all these other things, but uh, you've fallen out of love with me. There's one question I would like us as a congregation to ask ourselves and think about this week. And I want you to write this down. Here's the question. Am I in love with Jesus? Am I in love with Jesus? Because some people are in love with church life, they're in love with fellowship, they're in love with great doctrine and Bible study, and that's all good. But am I in love with Jesus? How do you know if you're in love with Jesus? Well, what I found in my life is that the people I'm in love with, Cheryl, uh, what, what we've found is we just like to spend time together. And uh, I remember when we were dating how she worked in Delray, I lived in Miami, and I would drive up as, and, and I would drive the 50 miles up to see her and only be able to see her for a few minutes. And uh, then she, you know, she got off her shift at work and then she'd head home as late at night. And then I'd drive all the way back. But all we cared about was spending some time together. And so what we find is that we spend time with those that we love. And so I want to encourage you to examine that. This is not you people. This is something we need to think about this and make sure that we have a love for Jesus and we're spending time with him, not just going to church and doing the serving and doing all the, those are all great things, but don't fall out of your love with Jesus. So verse five, here's the exhortation. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Now I've, I've underlined some words here, fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand. And we'll talk about that out of its place unless you repent. So there's some heavy consequences for doing all this stuff but not being in love with Jesus. The, the church is called the bride of Christ. And um, guys, uh, tell me if you agree. You can have a wife and if she's busy and she's serving and she's faithful and you know, busy doing all the, the housewife stuff. But if there's no passion in the relationship, it's really not worth it. It's really not worth it because you know, that, that's, I'm, I'm going to move on. Anyways, but here, here's, what Cheryl, here's what Cheryl and I learned. Early on, we realized that um, we wanted to have a relationship. We both come from challenging backgrounds. We've told you some of those stories. But we realized that we wanted to have a relationship that would last the, the distance. And so what we realized, we made a decision. Sometimes knowing what you don't want isn't the same thing as knowing what you do want. And so we realized that for us, that we wanted to have a relationship where we'd be face-to-face and we'd be communicating and talking. So we made the decision all those years ago that we would not have TV in our home. Now, it creeps in through the internet, but uh, for, you know, for the most part, we've never had TV in our home. So our relationship was always face-to-face as opposed to side-by-side looking at, at something. So for 24 years now, our relationship has been, we just spend time together talking, we walk. And what we've learned is that when you have as many kids, we have 12 kids, and we have an 8-year-old, and we got a 30-year-old, and three are married now, and you know, they're coming up, and they're all different. And there's all these things going on that if we're not careful 
you know, we can get caught up in the busyness of doing the kids thing and all the needs that they have that we will miss this relationship. And how many people do we know the kids grow up, the kids move out and they get a divorce because what they find is that we have no relationship anymore. And so we wanted to make sure that we were doing that. So we've been intentional about making sure that we keep that. But that's, that's time that we, we have to make intentional spending time together. Does that make sense? You know, maybe, yeah. Okay. So, but here, here's what he says. First of all, he says, remember. Remember what it was when you first came to the Lord and you were so excited about your relationship with Jesus? What was it that you were doing? For me, I was in the Word. I just, I, I couldn't get enough of it. I would read it and it just came alive to me. But it, he says, Re- remember that. And then, then go and do those deeds. D- repent, make that decision, and then go and begin doing that. And what you'll find is that, is that that love that you have for the Lord will come back. It'll come back. And so you want to do that. Well, verse 5 again, let me read that. He says, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, some people, when they read this, they think that it teaches that you can lose your salvation. That's not what this is saying. Um, when he says, I'll remove your lampstand, we just read the verse a few minutes ago from Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, and I put that line on your outline. And it says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Does everybody see that? So when he's saying, I will remove your lampstand, he's not saying, I'm going to take away your salvation. He says, I'll remove your lampstand, which is the church. So let me paraphrase Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you don't change this, I'll close your church. And that's what he's saying. I'll close your church. Which is why you've never met anybody from the Ephesus church. Because they didn't change. And the church closed. Have you ever been to a church that's dying? And, uh, you know, you just want to stand up and announce on the PA system, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus has left the building. And and the reason being is is you just feel like he's not even there anymore. Here's what you'll find. At some point, at some point, they've walked away from loving Jesus uh, to loving their history, their traditions, their theology, but they've walked away from that loving Jesus. And when that happens, you'll find that that church is on a path that they're going to close. So I always want to ask myself, am I, am I loving Jesus? You know, it, it, is that, that's, all that is good. You don't want to throw that away, but you want to love Jesus. Well, verse 6, yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And you want to underline that, which I also hate. So before we go any further, I want you to write this down. God hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So the question is, who are the Nicolaitans? There's a lot of theories, um, but what we do know is the word Nicolaitan is a compound word in the original language. It's two words stuck together. And together, and I put that on your outline, Nikos means a conquest by implication, triumph or victory. Laos means a people. That's where we get the English word laity. It means the people. So the word Nicolaitans means to rule over the laity. And you want to write that down. Those who rule over the laity. 
And Jesus says, you hate those that do that or you hate the deeds of those who do that. And I hate that too. Do you remember how Jesus would wash the disciples' feet and, and uh, he'd say, the reason I'm doing this is so that you know that we don't lord it over people. We don't do that. And, and uh, so that's just not part of who we are. So Jesus says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the lording it over people, ruling over them. And Jesus says, I hate that too. But do you remember me telling you that these seven letters are going to lay out 2,000 years of church history? Well, we're going to find that the early church hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But if you go down to, ch- to verse 15 there in chapter 2, we're going to find later on another church emerges and notice what's going to happen in verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way, and this is, not, this is a criticism, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Does your Bible say something like that? Now here's the thing. The first church hated that they would rule over people. They would never do that. Later on in church history, there's going to be a teaching that we now rule over the people. And it's a very sad time in church history. We'll talk about that when we get there. We don't see that happen too much today. It does happen from time to time. Um, If you were around the church back in the 70s, there was what's called the uh, shepherding movement. How many of you are old enough to remember the shepherding movement? And uh, you go to church and they'd say, you come under this umbrella of this church. And so the pastor is a spiritual leader. So to marry somebody, you had to get their permission, what car to buy, what job to get. And, uh, you, you know, and, and so we've seen, I remember when we first started the church, we're back at the high school and uh, it was after a service and this lady walks down in the front and they always do the same thing if they come from the shepherding movement. She comes down to the front and she says, pastor, I'm here. You're my pastor and I come under your umbrella and they make the the sign of your umbrella and they say, I wanna be under your authority. So if you see anything in my life or the Lord gives you a word for me, you know, know, I'm gonna gonna need you to, to do that. And I'm always polite, but inside I'm like, look lady, I have at that time six kids and I'm just trying to make it through the day. I, I don't have time to run your life. You know, talk to my wife. She runs my life. Maybe she can fit you in. I don't know. So, so we don't do that. But here's what we do. And I put this verse on your outline and I love this verse. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith, you are standing firm. So our position of ministry is if we can come alongside and help you accomplish what it is that God's calling you to do, we wanna do that. But we're not gonna dictate that to you. So it's for your joy, for your faith. Well, verse seven, it goes on, and uh, verse seven, and it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, and I've underlined that, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And uh, ultimately what we're going to find, and you want to write this down, the church didn't get it, so Jesus appeals to the individual. And uh, he's going to say, to him who overcomes. Sadly, this church is not going to get it. You can't go to First Ephesus Church right now that existed from the beginning. But many people in the church did overcome, which is why the gospel kept going forward. So I want to leave us today with, with uh, 
just that question, if I can. And it's a great question as we, as we begin this series. Are you still in love with Jesus? You want to make sure that it's not just your theology. Your theology needs to be great. And we spend a lot of time on that. But, but the thing is, you never want to lose that relationship with Jesus. You don't, want, you, you don't want to be so busy trying to be right that you forget that Jesus is in your midst and he's right there. And you don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss him. Did you find that interesting today? Good, good. Um, we're going to close in prayer at this point. And as we do, I, I want to just invite you, if you've never invited Jesus into your life, received his free gift of salvation, let me just say that the reason that he created you is because he wanted to have a relationship with you. There's another voice, another entity who comes to kill, to rob, and destroy, and he wants to destroy you ever having a relationship with the Lord. But he created you because he wanted to have a relationship with you. I mean, how many of you parents, you had a baby and you looked at the baby and said, I can't wait to mess this one up. You know, we don't do that. We, we have children because we, we want to invest in them. We want to love them. We want to see them grow and hopefully to miss out on all the stupid things that we did. They don't, but we want them to. And, and that's the idea with him. He created you because he wanted to have a relationship with you. It's a free gift. And if you want that, he has that today. And it's just simply inviting him in. So as we close, you can invite him in today. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap this up today, our prayer is that for us as believers who love teaching, love fellowship, uh, Lord, that, that we would never forget that uh, we want to be in love with you. And we don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss that. And so if, if we've missed that and we're honest and we say, I don't know that I'm in love with Jesus, Lord, remind us of the things we did in the beginning. And as we go back to those things, rekindle that love in us for you. For those of us who are here today and we've not invited you in, we've not said, I, I want your free gift of relationship, salvation, forgiveness of sins, we receive that today. And so we invite you to come in, Jesus. We thank you for saving us, giving us that. And, and we want this relationship as we go forward because we know that you created us because you care for us and you wanted to see great things in our life. So we want to follow you. Help us to hear your voice and not the voices of so many around who tell us that you don't have good things for us. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, thank you so much. We'll see you next time.